Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. We are on the Compliance Podcast Network, and you can find our landing page at Corporate Compliance Insights. Today, we have what Mary calls a bonus episode. And as we are on the U.S., and this is going to be released on the eve of Thanksgiving, I'm really thankful for both this guest and this episode. I am speaking with Chris Brown. She's the president of Brady, which is the leading advocacy group in the United States to end gun violence. Um, And you may be wondering now how that relates to the Great Women in Compliance podcast. Well, as Chris will tell you more about her background, it really includes the role of Chief Legal Officer at Gate Group, and that's Gate Gourmet and Airline Catering, where she built the compliance program, among many other things she did there, including the values, the mission, some other things. She came up with the strategy, she implemented it, and she worked to build the compliance culture. After Gate Group, she went back to her first passion, which was advocacy, and that led her to Brady. While a lot of us have found a forever profession in the ethics and compliance world, Chris is a great example of something people ask about a lot, life after compliance, and how you can take what you're doing now for future experience. And for full disclosure, I've known Chris for more years than I want to admit, and probably the time length of some of our youngest podcast listeners. Um, And she's a friend and a mentor, a colleague, and really my work spouse for life. Um, And without her, I don't know if I would have ended up in the ethics and compliance world. So I am very thankful for that, for your friendship, and also for your guidance into this career in this world. So with that, Chris, thanks. Can you talk a little bit about your background, your career path, and what made you get more involved in compliance and focus on it? Absolutely. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. And I'm a big fan of your podcast. Uh, So thanks for all that you're doing to really amplify and tell the stories of so many incredible people in the world of compliance, which uh, years ago was kind of a nascent profession and has really exploded, I think, for all of the right reasons. Um, And now I forgot your first question, Lisa. How did you get into compliance um, and how did you start getting involved in it in your time, either before we were at GATE together and just a little bit about your career, how you got there? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a roundabout tale, like most of the tales in my life, to be honest. Um, I graduated college and worked on Capitol Hill for many years. I was a legislative assistant to a member of Congress in the House of Representatives. I went to law school at night. I clerked for a judge and was a lawyer uh, doing mainly litigation, but other kinds of uh, legal representation as well. And compliance was not really something that I Um, materially did as a lawyer, but I touched on it in all kinds of different ways. One of the ways we did that, of course, lawyers consult on issues of compliance with the law and all that we do. Um, And uh, for me, I started off as a regulatory lawyer and then really switched to litigation. A lot of what I saw uh, piecing together before I went to my next career was on the one side, companies who were really trying to get it right. And on the other side, companies who really got it wrong and they were being sued. <laughs> so that drove the point home that compliance is very important. And I landed kind of serendipitously uh, at GATE, uh, 
that's an airline catering uh, provisioning and logistics company that's international based in uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Um, and one of the first issues that I was given task as general counsel of the Americas at the time was really moving forward with a more robust compliance framework within GATE. And so like any general counsel looking at this, the way I learned was by uh, tapping into the expertise of other lawyers who really helped me understand what are the business risks? How do we go about solving these things? And provided a lot of stepping stones for me to be able to understand what kind of structure needed to be put in place that was actually workable for GATE. And I would say the one thing that I really took away from my experience working with the business side of what we do is the importance of understanding the nuts and bolts of the business and what businesses are really all about, supply chain and everything else in implementing a compliance program. And I found it fascinating, really, really interesting. And obviously, um, still apply pieces of that understanding it, albeit in a very, very different dimension, leading a gun violence prevention organization. Well, yeah, I mean, I think learning about the business is um, one of the most important parts, I think, of anywhere you're working, understand the people, what motivates them, what the concerns are. I think that's been, a, um, from when you and I, or particularly you started in the, in the compliance area, I think there's been a real shift and a move forward. Um, there's yeah. still a ways to go. Um, and before we talk a little bit more about your, your time at uh, Gate Group and some of the focus on the compliance that was sort of forced on you there, um, can we talk a little bit about um, how you ended up at Brady and what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was at Gate Group for seven or eight years. If you look back at my career, I'm mostly in places for seven or eight years is how it has turned out. Um, and as you noted in your introduction of me, Lisa, I found myself itching over time to get back in an advocacy role. I started out there. I grew up in a very um, political household. We were always very engaged in campaigns and causes. When I was living overseas in Switzerland, obviously with GATE, uh, one of the first questions I got asked, no matter where someone was from, no matter their race, gender, or anything else, it, when they found out I was American, was what's up with gun violence in America. And so when I moved back to the United States, I really took that issue on, that and climate change, as one of the two issues I really wanted to devote some time and energy to trying to solve, honestly, and being a part of the solution. And as it happens, the member of Congress that I worked for approached me and said, hey, Gate, uh, sorry, Brady needs uh, someone to help them with their strategy, which I did do. They hired me as a consultant. And then one thing led to the other. And I ended up being asked by the board to be co-president and then president of this organization. That really is the honor of a lifetime to work on this cause um, because it's so tied to everything I believe in about the kind of country that I want to live in and that I want my two daughters, Katie and Sophia, to inherit. 
Yes. And at another moment of full disclosure, Katie and Sophia are people that will be taking care of me throughout my life as well. So we want a good world for them so they can take care of us both. Yeah, they're pretty clear on that. She's they're wonderful, wonderful girls and and women now. So um, with that, so let's talk, we're going to probably go back to Brady a little more, but let's talk a little bit about Gate Group. And when I started at Gate Group, I remember very clearly about six weeks later, we were in a meeting where we were all told we had to not look at our phones. Um, And I was thinking, what a great place for great meeting etiquette. Um, Turns out, and we were meeting with some outside counsel. I was still so excited to be there, brand new. Um, I'd known a little bit about what they call the fraud incident. Um, But it was a major, um, you know, perfect storm of compliance issues, which led to the CEO's resignation. And apparently that was going to be public in the middle of this meeting. And you were aware of that. So you didn't want us all to, you know, get sidetracked from whatever important thing we were doing at that moment. Um, But with that said, can you talk a little bit about that, you know, that incident? It's publicly in the news and sort of how it impacted you, Gate, and your world of growing a compliance program. Well, it was quite the jolt for an organization that, um, you know, has uh, at the time, I think our global revenue was around $3 billion per year. And just to give every your listeners a sense, the footprint of GATE was that we had operated in 180 countries. And as an airline catering and logistics provider, obviously that means we have units, we have personnel and units all across the country, about 30,000 employees at the time. So this was a very labor intensive enterprise. But while we were operating this business, which was essentially based on entering long-term contracts with airlines who would pay us for those services on a you know fee system set in the contract, and we would provide those services. The airline industry was going through, well, it always goes through tumult, but a major change and shift in a new business enterprise. And that was retail on board. And it really reversed or turned on its head the economics of how the airline industry worked or the catering and airline industry relationship. And that's because in that model, the caterer, themselves determines what to put on board, what the cost price structure is. Essentially, the the flight attendants are the line agents of selling the product and the caterer collects all of the money related to each flight and then pays the airline a certain amount. So it's just a completely different business model. This fraud, this is a long explanation, but I think it's really important to understand why this was a compliance issue because I've thought a lot about this. This fraud was perpetrated by a woman named Amanda Jacobson. Um, It's a crazy, crazy story in its essence that deserves like five different podcasts because she was out of central casting. If you ever saw the movie, Catch Me If You Can, that's Amanda Jacobson. She had like six identities, all of which were fraudulent. So lesson number one was screen your employees, which hadn't really happened here. But beyond that, she was in charge of uh, Gates retail operations, the buy on board operations in Denmark. And over a period of seven years, she stole $25 million. And that's material based on our operations at the time. And as a publicly traded company at the time on the Swiss Stock Exchange, we had to disclose that information. And it was 
a huge undertaking. You can imagine working with our chief financial officer, trying to understand the scope and scale of this fraud, Make working my boss, Human Yazari at the time, who was the chief legal officer, I assume that role later, I mean, it was 24-7 for all of legal to do the investigations, to understand the scope and scale of this fraud, to report it, and then help with the prosecution of this woman. Um, so it was a really big deal and got us probably really on the path to a completely different way of looking at compliance within the business enterprise, within all of these countries where we operated and really understand how to manage the risk of that kind of fraud from ever happening again. Yeah, and if I remember correctly too, there was people risk that comes as a result of this in part because she, if anybody got a little closer to any of this, she managed to either isolate or terminate all the things that we talk about in compliance now from hotlines and from other things that were, you know have, have grown in popularity. It was ability of controls, people able to mess with controls and a lot of different things like that. Yeah, if I think about it in one way, one of the tales here, uh, or one of the lessons that I take away is um, making sure that regardless of how much uh, someone ingratiates themselves to management or more senior leadership, the same set of rules have to apply to everyone. And what happened, I think, ultimately is that um, too much discretion was given to this individual. Other See, less people who were reporting to her did call and did say things about her, but she would manipulate or move her way out of it. Um, and ultimately, you know, what she was doing before she was finally caught was really trying to, um, you know, shred all evidence of this, um, make sure that folks didn't know, it didn't help a whole lot when we went to the bank that was processing uh, all of the cash for <laughs> Ms. Jacobson and the tellers told us, oh, well, she would bring it in and then she would leave with a black bag of extra cash. And so it was very clear um, that she was not properly reporting the amount of money that was made on each flight. She was skimming the amount off. And for someone who made, you know, a decent, reasonable salary. It was another uh, major note that she was living in a multi-million dollar mansion on the lake in Copenhagen. So just so much came out and it was a black mark, obviously, that gay group ultimately um, moved past very well, but a black mark for many people who were in senior leadership. And that was the other lesson that even the people who were not directly involved who tried to do all of the right thing, there's an aftershock associated with this that really takes down everyone, um, which is why I think compliance is so critically important because you can't take back um, the reputational damage in some of these events easily at all. It took years and years and years. Well, a little bit after that, as you mentioned earlier, you assumed the role of chief legal officer and you are, this I personally remember being a part of is you, you, you know, you recognized as the whole organization did the need for a compliance program, um, you know, that, that was more intense and more centralized. So you went about essentially figuring out a way to build that. So how did you kind of take a look at that and, and start with, I mean, I, I often think about the adage, you know, never waste a good crisis. At this point, we passed the aftershocks. Um, but 
you know, there was a need for building this, uh, you know, a function or, you know, what would work for the organization. So that was the way of asking, you know, what steps did you then take when you clearly everyone had identified this need? Then you had to make it a reality. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that became clear to me when I was general counsel of the Americas is that the U.S. at the time, and this was in the early 2000s, well, mid to mid 2000s, um, was really leading the world and thinking about compliance and taking it quite seriously. So I would raise issues around compliance with my boss and he would say, oh, that's really interesting. Put a policy together and we'll make that global. And he was always up for any of my ideas about how we could, you know, make make a case for why this is good for business and and makes good sense to do and mitigates risk. So I had a long track record, probably two or three years of doing those kinds of activities, whether that's setting up a global hotline that ultimately you really pushed through, <laughs> Lisa, um, or making sure that there were processes and consistency for how claims against the company were investigated, either employee claims or external claims. I mean, some of what to put it nicely, some of what I was able to implement was the lowest of low-hanging fruit. But a big part of my, I guess, top-down sort of approach was creating tone at the top. So I spent a lot of time getting to know the other colleagues I had in the C-suite, getting very close to our CEO, and helping convince him about why tone at the top why communication around standards, why creating our values, which I did help create when I was the chief legal officer. I recall, Lisa, you and another colleague of ours helped finalize those values that were- That's one of my favorite gate memories. Me too. Also over time, I do remember that sometimes, you know, when we'd have a particularly difficult day, I would reinterpret the same words with minions or Beastie Boys lyrics or things like that. It's a little bit yes. more, you know, nerdy. I should have known then I'd end up in ethics and compliance forever because I was way more amused by that than anybody else. I was amused by that too. And I recall <laughs> our fondness for alliteration. Um, I don't think that the values ended up being quite as alliterative as we might've liked, but it was a really fun process because we knew we were putting the scaffolding in that both would drive compliance forward, but also clarity in the business And I will say what was essential to the success of this and cascading down throughout 30,000 employees, which was mind boggling for me to go into units all across the world. I remember going into a unit in Japan and they had the values pictorially demonstrated on all of the walls. They had painted them. And I almost wanted to cry because that made me understand, wow, this thing that we had put together that we knew was an essential element of tone at the top. Obviously, it was much more complicated than just the values, but they're core, core and important to compliance. All of the units had taken them and made them their own. And to personalize that and to personalize the role of compliance, make people understand why it's important, I think is so critically important. What I would say about my takeaway on it in general of that experience is there are a lot of people selling a lot of things to to me when I was chief legal officer. Hey, put this system in. Hey. And I would always ask, 
how's that going to help our business actually comply? Because we have people doing a lot of other different things. And I would always get so frustrated when people would try to sell me something that A, I didn't think that would work. And that B, reflected no diligence on their part of our actual business. And I'm sure that happens all the time. But I think real compliance is figuring out how your business operates, where the true risks are, and then tailoring and designing a program around that. And that was the funnest part of the job for me in many respects is, is that work. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely. I'd hate to break it to you, but I think we still have that same situation where we often have vendors who will do at least I find one of two things. Either they will not know anything about the business or decide that they know more about the business than I do and start, you know, explaining to me what our business is doing. And, and you know, there are a lot of excellent vendors and people out there who do that right. But sometimes it's like, would it be so hard to just ask me what my biggest concerns are and then respond? It's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And that's so frustrating. And I, I do think that folks who really just spend a little bit of time trying to understand how it is that someone like you could really advance compliance in your organization with these tools, boy, that would be a unique conversation. I never had those with folks. When I, I, was, I will say I do have them now and I feel very fortunate. They're not right. necessarily people I may be using now or next week, but I remember. So I, I, I tell, I'm always like, play the long game with somebody like me yeah. because I will yeah. much more remember, you know, someone who's not pushing me. So it's their next quarter of sales versus someone who's trying to learn about me, get to know me and, and, and get to know more importantly, the business I'm working in and what works and what doesn't. And there, and especially the people yeah. who say, you know, we have this great solution, but it won't work for you. I respect oh that. Oh my gosh. That's, that's, yeah, that's amazing. That is the best. So I'm going to ask one more thing about the uh, gate group, gate gourmet experience. Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about, you know, your changes from in the midst of the compliance to out of there, which is, what were your biggest cultural challenges? I mean, I remember some of mine being, you know, and, and still have some in the global company, but how did you address that in building a program? That's such a great question because I think that, um, well, first of all, obviously Gate had an international footprint. We operated, I think in 38, um, no, I think 180 different countries. What am I saying? But we had, um, uh, 30,000 employees. And so the culture, uh, the cultural challenges are obvious when you're uh, talking about different languages, different ways of doing business, different internalizations of risk in different cultures. There's a lot written about that. And that's real uh, that you have to kind of internalize. Um, how you talk about these issues with employees can often vary um, from country to country. But part of it too honestly, is thinking about the top 100 or 150 employees and thinking about how to really engage them and make sure they are focusing with their teams and cascading down compliance in a real way. And the cultural issue that I had at first there was, why should I pay attention to this? Why does this matter? Because for a long time, in the business operations, the way, and I'm not picking on gate um, because I think many, many companies were like this and many still are. I just want to stay under the radar and do business and grow um, in a way that I always have. And 
anyone who's telling me that I have to fill out this extra form or watch this video for training is just wasting my time. So part of what we had to do is switch the culture from one where compliance was viewed just as a cost to where compliance was viewed as imperative to actually secure business. I do think a big and important component of this is also the shift of other vendors in contractually requiring and forcing bidding around compliance. And I think much more of that should happen. A lot of this can happen and be reinforced with appropriate provisions in contracts and the supply chain. Yeah, I think right now we do a lot of, we at all companies are very concerned about their business partners' codes, our supply chain. I mean, that becomes more and more. I mean, I think that that becomes a huge part of it. And, and a lot of people in this field are talking a lot about, you know, when, when, we were at Gabe, it was CSR, now it's ESG, you know, name, right. you've always got an acronym. So with, with that, um, I'm going to move out, you will leave from Gabe, because as you can tell now, you were really engaged and involved in compliance and ethics. And I talk a lot about ethical decision-making, helping people make the right choices, as opposed yes. to talking about regulations um, as well. Yeah. Um, I think that's a shift yeah. in the field too, which I think has been great. But I know that when you left Gate. Um, you know, you spent a lot of, we talked a little about it before, you spent a lot of time figuring out what did you want to do next? Um, and I talked a little before, but a little more about how did you go through the process? I know you had the, you know, gun violence and climate change as big causes for you, but how did you start thinking about this in terms of your short-term kind of break from the corporate world to coming back in some form? And how did, how did you get there in your thought process? I'd like to say that I wrote it down on a piece of paper and a clear and uh, demonstrably, uh, you know, effective five-step plan, but that would be a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, a big part of what I did was something that I'd never given myself the space to do really in my life because Each job that I had from one to the next, from the first job after college until Gate, had to some extent fallen into my lap. And that's neither good nor bad, but simply a fact. Literally, I got the the job at Gate because I was walking down the hall at the firm where we both worked, Lisa, while got Manji's and the managing partner said, hey, you because he'd just been called by a client gate to see if a general counsel could be seconded. And I was the person he saw walking down the hall. And that's how- I think it was a little more than that. I think he- It may have been more than that. But I mean, to me, it was, it was, I was at the law firm. I didn't look for another job. And then I landed in this job that really made my life and, and career in many respects. But once I decided to leave Switzerland and take some time to sort of be with my girls and be more of a full-time mom, I gave myself the space for about three months really not to think about it and just make sure, hey, these things that you want to do that are actually really hard, climate change, gun violence in America, um, do you want to do them? And I remember having conversations with you about that. You know, it's it's very different. It's very hard. And it's a departure from the rest of my career where it was really sort of a progression from one thing to the next. But it was something that wouldn't leave me and something that I really cared about. When I thought about it some more, 
it really offered me the opportunity to work in a way that drew upon all of my experience. And that's the part that I love the most about it. And I'm so glad I did take the time because I worked on Capitol Hill. I care about policy. I care about advocacy. I spent almost eight years of my life doing that. I'm a lawyer. I'm trained as a lawyer, trained as a litigator. I'm a problem solver. I love, you know this, I love thinking about strategy. That was one of my favorite things to do when I was at Gate in the role I was privileged enough to have. I was able to do so much thinking around that with really talented and committed people. I wanted to take all of that and if I could combine it in some meaningful way and work on something I'm truly passionate about. And if it was hard and if it was an uphill battle, that made me feel more resolved to work on it because it's important and it matters. And I really wanted to spend more of my life, to be honest, focused on things like that, where I can feel like I'm making a real difference and not so much, these are worthy and noble professions, but not so much in a corporate environment for a while. And so that's, that's where I ended up. I mean, I could have gone on to become a general counsel in another company. There were those offers that came. I could have thought about something going back to a law firm. And that those, what I would say about it is attractive as those things were, it didn't speak to me. I allowed my gut to sort of dictate the path forward. And I'm really grateful I gave myself that time. And I think most people, your gut is telling you something, whether you pay attention to it or not, is something else. Um, yeah, absolutely. And giving yourself space to think about these things and understanding, in the words of Marie Kondo, well, what sparks joy? How can I use all that I know, all that I've gained in my career to really focus on something that makes it feel like I'm not working? Um, those are the kinds of questions that I asked myself, and that's how I landed at Brady. Yeah, I think it's interesting because when I've been through that process a little bit um, most recently, I started with a slightly different approach, which was the, what do I not want? And what, I mean, that's effective too. Well, I mean, it's a straight, because I thought to myself, I was, I knew where I wanted to live. And I thought, you know, it is important to me to be in an organization that has something I'm interested in. I, I do, you know, like ethics and compliance people, what you're saying really resonates because I think we are very passionate about the field sometimes. But I also thought, so I ended up in, you know, books, books and law and learning is pretty much my back, part of my background. And, you know, you and I talk about, you know, books probably more than careers lately, because, you know, sometimes you want to not talk about work, especially when work is as significant as some of what you're doing. Um, But I do think it's, it's, I think it is really important whether you take a break or you don't to, for anybody who's thinking about what they're doing now is, yeah, is this, is this what my gut tells me I want to do? Or am I sticking it out for other reasons? Um, yeah, because yeah. I, I think in our society, we're conditioned, and I understand this, believe me, so um, I'm, no, no judgment here at all, but almost be too risk averse on these things, because doing something that is not sparking joy, even if it started out um, that way, if you have uh, conviction and you have something that drives you, that you're passionate about, that you care so much about, you can find ways to do that and giving yourself time and space to think about that and even taking a few risks along the way 
to do that ideally in mid-career, but I know people who are doing it much later in their career. I've met some of them. They're amazing. Um, it's never too late to think about this and to think about how so much of your experience could be used in a way that you hadn't thought about um, to make a career change. Okay, I'm taking a tremendous amount of your time. So I have two more questions that I want to ask you. Also, though, I want one clarifying point. I mean, I know you love what you're doing and you're very passionate about it, but I want everyone to realize it's not, it's not rainbows and unicorns every day, is it? No, it's gun <laughs> violence in America. And without being tongue in cheek, it's a pretty heavy, uh, harrowing issue. That said, the importance of it and the idea that the things that we're working on have the potential to save lives make a big difference. And uh, the, the zing in your step and uh, you, the, the alacrity with which you get out of bed in the morning. And that makes a difference in my life. Yeah. And I think it's huge. I just sometimes find that people think when you're in a life of public service, suddenly it's like this world of gratefulness and gratitude and the alacrity. And let me just say, yeah. I mean, I know you well enough to know that it's every day. It's not just, you know, a parade of crusading and everyone just stepping in line. Uh, but with no. that, while you're trying to do all these things to make the world a better place, and I think it's, you know, it's something that I really admire about you. What did you take? I'm turning back to now to ethics and compliance, but what did you take from your experience in what you did before to that into your current role now? Oh my gosh, so much. So one of the things that you, uh, that Brady has that didn't, they didn't have when I joined our values <laughs> <laughs> and organ a pretty rigorous organizational structure for reporting lines, cascading down information throughout the organization, really thinking about structure and process, a very close relationship, incredibly close relationship between me and our CFO for obvious reasons. For people probably, everyone at Brady knows about Amanda Jacobson, for example, the woman who stole $20 million. Sometimes like, Chris, you know that we're a $30 million nonprofit. I'm like, I know, but that's not gonna happen on my watch. So, so much of it, it's not so much, you know, we don't have the same bells and whistles. We're not a publicly traded company, but we have, nonprofits have a lot of different regulations that we have to comply with and be super attuned to. And a big part of what I've done is think about what are those things? Who should own them? Mapping that out and being very clear, you own this, which also means you don't own these, own these other things and creating accountability, not just for those people that we have designated ownership, but for their teams. So there's transparency and knowledge and it's an ongoing process. Um, but that's been really, really fun to be able to put together. And I never would have known how to do that or, you know, the right way to assign these things if I hadn't worked in, in that realm of compliance at gate. Yeah, that's incredibly helpful. And I think the one thing I, I wanted to flip it around on you for one second is what do you wish with all this experience and perspective that you have when you're working with people in, in ethics and compliance? And what do you wish that we would keep in mind? Because, you know, we can also become very single minded in pursuit. Um, but you know, what do you wish that, that, that you think a good ethics and compliance professional should know and keep in mind? 
Well, I'm talking to one of my uh, best, my most favorite ethics and compliance folks, and I think they should all be more like you. Uh, okay, well, that, I would I would like to say that I'm going to edit that out, but I'm not. But um, <laughs> I don't think you should. But I'll say I'll say I'll give you the reason why, and it's not just uh, uh, touting my work spouse. It's because when I have an issue, as I have had, as you can imagine, from time to time that I'm concerned about within Brady and trying to think about the right solution, you're always one of the first calls, if not the first call that I have. And you always ask a lot of really probing and important questions because you want to get to a practical solution. So my larger thing, and this comes from probably who I am, so everyone can discount this a little, that it's the subjective view of Chris, but I do think there's a lot of objective um, indicia to say this is the right thing is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I think asking the right questions, understanding here's probably directionally, this is what you need to do, and really figuring out how to make something work within a business enterprise, obviously lawfully, <laughs> is so critically important because these questions we wrestle with that you wrestle with in the compliance world, they're hard. They're really often incredibly hard. But I think the more you probe and the more you get to know the clients and, and the folks that you're working with, the easier it is to collectively, with input, get to the right answer. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for that compliment. But a lot of that, I, I think I learned in the gate gate group boot camp, And a lot of that came from you because I had to answer a lot of your questions. Um, and I, you know, I've re and I'm going to close with the little anecdote. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, talking about some of my favorite, you know, compliance horror stories. And this one was also in the news. One of my favorite phone calls I ever made to you because you, with, it comes back to the values, you know, we're so excited. Oh, I know which one this is. The lanyards. Yeah. When you <laughs> kept saying, have they been distributed? Have they been distributed at Fruit Lisa? Had they gotten to India yet? I said, I've been told they have. And then one, one day I was able to say to you, Chris, I have some good news and some bad news. Good news is I now have confirmation they've been distributed in, in India. The bad news is two of our employees were wearing them in mugshots, which was in a local newspaper because they were trying to smuggle gold. It wasn't Gates' fault. It wasn't anyone's. It was this small enterprise but I don't know at that moment if you really wanted to laugh or cry. So I think we just rolled our eyes. Um, <laughs> we did. Oh, Gates. Yeah. And we had so many. We had things at while like that. And I will say before I close off, not only are you a dear friend, and I said a lot of nice things before, which I mean every one of them, is I think it talks about the support for women and women throughout their careers. And there's nothing that's more inspiring than having some of your, you know, day one ride or dies that you still can talk to many years later. So for some of you who are starting out, you can realize that the people you think of today is, you know, the people you ask for advice on something you think is mundane or routine and you, you know, end up not only being, you know, work valued colleagues, but your friends for life. And I think that's one part of this community and our community. So Chris, thank you for joining me and thank you so much for all of that. And I hope everyone in the U.S. has a great Thanksgiving. And everyone who's not in the U.S., Thanksgiving's a good U.S. holiday. So you, this one you can take a little from us. So thanks again.
Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.